This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. We do want to talk about uh, the housing market. We are live at uh, the Rutgers Real Estate Conference at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, And right now in front of me is Ryan Marshall. He's president and chief executive officer at Pulte Group uh, here in New York, based in Atlanta, but here in New York. And we just uh, sat uh, up on stage talking about the housing market. You are optimistic and upbeat. We are, Carol. Um, When we look at the overall supply and demand environment in housing, uh, we're optimistic about what we see. I pushed you a little bit. I said, where are we in the cycle? And I wasn't going to do any kind of analogies. But you think that there's, what, a few more years to run in this cycle? We do. And and it's really grounded by what we're seeing in the overall economy with wage growth, job creation, uh, interest rates being very affordable, uh, despite the fact that we're seeing some increases in the 10-year interest rates on the 30-year fixed, which is what consumers care about are very affordable. We think that all adds up to a supply and a demand environment that's very favorable for housing, and we see some runway left. And that move up in interest rates, I, t- I mentioned a, you know, like a full percentage point, 100 basis point over the last year and about 50 basis points this year. That hasn't really impacted things. It, it hasn't, and it's been because the, the uh, backdrop, the economic backdrop has continued to be positive, and it's very different if you compare it to what happened in 2013 with the taper tantrum there we saw almost a 100 basis point increase in 90 days, but in a very different economic environment. Right. We haven't seen that this time, and I think that's why consumers are continuing to be uh, very strong in their buying behaviors. Ryan, what's great about talking to you and looking at what Pulte does is you guys are so diverse geographically, and you play into so many different sectors of the housing market. You play into the first-time home buyer, the move-up, uh, those who are looking, maybe thinking about retirement. You also play at the high end. Um, you're seeing demand across all that all the spectrum. We are. In particular, we're seeing great demand in the first time in the move-up segment. So that's interesting because, uh, you know, I think there was a real thinking that millennials weren't interested in buying homes anymore. What are you seeing about the millennial buyer that's kind of interesting in terms of their trends and their interests? The biggest th- change that we've seen is they've been a little bit delayed in major life events with the biggest one being getting married and having children. And as they've been doing that later than their predecessor generation, they're actually buying homes just like the, fo- the generations before them. Do they have more money to play with? They do. They've had several uh, years in the workforce. They're typically a level or two advanced in their career. So they're coming in with bigger down payments and bigger salaries, which is allowing them to spend more money on their first home. And you guys are equally spread kind of among your segments, the different markets that you play into. Do you want to keep that mix? We'd like to see a slight shift to the entry level. It's about 30% of our business today. We'd like to see it closer to 35. Why? It's it's the biggest piece of the new of the new home market. Mm-hmm. It's roughly forty percent of total new home transactions, and so there's a lot of transactions there, and we'd like to have our share of it. Tell me about day to day business because there's definitely a move up in commodity prices. Um, I know labor is an issue certainly for the housing market. Um, tell me what you guys are seeing. Yeah, we are seeing uh, increasing in, increases in prices. We expected two and a half to three percent in 2018 uh, in both. Both input costs, labor, and material were running on the high side of that, right close to 3%, mm-hmm. mostly being driven by lumber. 
Um, the lumber rates currently are at an all-time high. Uh, we're starting to see them pull back ever so slightly, but it's not happening quite fast enough. You're passing all of that, though, on to consumers at this point. For the you most can. part, we have been able to, yes. What about labor, though? Because I know that, that when I said to you, what keeps you up at night, and you're like, labor, labor, labor. Yeah, and it's really labor availability of yeah. labor. labor, and I shortage. think the labor shortage has been one of the things that has kept housing from recovering sooner uh, or faster than what it has is because there is a real shortage in labor. So how do you deal with that? Well, um, there are a number of things that we can do. Uh, our size and our scale cert- certainly gives us an advantage in attracting the labor in the market. One of the other things that we're looking at to combat the labor shortage is some off-site manufacturing and doing more things in factories with robotics. What do you think is the most kind of interesting story or what will be the interesting story of the housing market in the next few years? Uh, you know, I think the most interesting thing will be the uh, through cycle sustainability of housing. And so the behavior that we're seeing from uh, all of the new home builders is much more long-term minded. And I think we're all being more responsible in the capital that we're investing into new land, how many homes we're bringing online a year. It feels uh, very appropriate that we're supplying the right amount of homes for the demand that's there. So that's... Thank you, financial crisis, mortgage amount. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe lessons learned. Maybe those <laughs> scars are still fresh. No, but seriously, right? That people have, have learned how to maybe do things a little bit differently. We believe so. And we think it's a good thing for the overall economy. We think it's a good thing for our investors. Um, in terms of immigration issues, and certainly that's something that the administration has talked a lot about and, and, and certainly taken some actions, um, is there something, do you feel like your voice is being heard in Washington when it comes to things like that? Um, I, th- I think the administration has certainly been very uh, pro-business, and you're seeing some of the things like the tax cuts that have really boosted the economy and put things into, uh, you know, a, a good spot. Specific of labor, there is a shortage in labor, uh, and we're, we're feeling it in particular. Um, some of the things that we're trying to do, um, you know, is educate the millennial workforce um, as to the opportunities that are available in construction. But they just don't want the jobs, right? The no, they don't. Um, in fact, the National Association of Home Builders did a study not too long ago, and they asked the question of the millennials, how much money would it take to in- incent you to go into construction? And the answer was uh, there is no amount of money for almost half of the survey respondents. So. Um, I think we can do a better job as an industry promoting the wonderful career opportunities that are available in real estate and housing. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. Great to spend some time with you. Ryan Marshall, he's president and chief executive officer of Pulte Group, uh, joining us on site here at the New York Stock Exchange. Yes, indeed. Solid with some turbulence. That's how she describes the global economy. And earlier she gave an update uh, here at the Rutgers Center for Real Estate Conference at the New York Stock Exchange. Happy to have with us Julia Coronado, president and founder of the independent research firm Macro Policy Perspectives. Nice to have you here with us. Thank you. There is a little bit of a break, so you're going to hear some sound in the background. Um, You just gave a presentation, um, and you did talk about the global economy. Solid with some turbulence. Mm -hmm. Um, 
What's the turbulence that you're most worried about? Because I feel like there's a list there's that a we list. could point to. There is a list. So one item on the list uh, that is outside of the U.S. is the Chinese slowing and the slowing that we've seen in Europe and just sort of the slowing in the man- global manufacturing cycle. Is it going to last? Is it going to deepen? Is it going to turn around? That's a big open question. Um, what so, happened to our synchronized global growth? Well, it's still there, but it's not quite as firing on all cylinders. We've seen pockets of distress in Turkey and Argentina. Um, so we're starting to see some wobbles in what was a uniformly wonderful picture last year. There's some cracks and and some, some tough spots, some rough spots. So that's one area that is uh, a source of turbulence. The other area is domestically generated. So um, a lot of uncertainty over trade policy. That may work mm-hmm. out well in the end, but in the near term, it certainly is a source of uncertainty. So it kind of gets in the way of businesses deciding exactly what to do with this tax cut that they've gotten, might delay some of the fiscal stimulus that we have expected to see. So um, that's another source of turbulence. And finally, the Fed. Yeah. The Fed raising interest rates. Well, it's so funny that you brought that up because there's a great story on the Bloomberg that says, okay, Jim Bullard of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, he says the central bank's policies are to blame for the flattening of the yield curve. Mm. Uh, and he says it's crunch time uh, yes. on yield curve inversion. Then you've got the Dallas Fed chief, Robert Kaplan, saying it would give me great pause if raising rates would invert the yield curve. Then you have Charlie Evans of the Chicago Fed saying the yield curve, well, it's less of a concern than it had been a, a few months ago. Right. Um, so you have a lot of different voices, um, important voices, speaking yes. about uh, the yield curve and the flattening of the yield curve. How do you see it? Well, I think it would become a constraint on their thinking about policy if we actually saw an inversion. I think we can go right up to flat without them taking too much of a signal. And we've seen that before? We've seen that before. I mean, Bullard, President Bullard is mechanically right. It is the Fed's fault in the sense that they're raising interest rates. And when the Fed raises short-term interest rates, the yield curve always flattens. Now, there's a certain amount of, 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 of carry that we expect to see built yeah. into the yield curve of risk premia. And... There still is some, and actually the yield curve is steepening today, so, you know, that would be a welcome development. Some people on the FOMC think, expect that, that, that long rates will rise with short rates, uh, and, and it won't be a constraint on them. Um, but if it did actually move to flat, which is probably three or four rate hikes from here, yeah. uh, then I think it would give them pause. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with Ryan Marshall of, of Pulte, as you know, and you listened to him earlier. He's very Great optimistic. Talk. Thank yes. you. Really optimistic, and I was kind of surprised mm-hmm. by his optimism. Yeah. Um, does it make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, he, he seems to have... Um, manage the risk in his business very well, right? So they have built in an expectation for higher rates, and they have invested in the markets where they see the greatest return uh, and where they have the least sort of headwinds to their business. But he did say, you asked him what keeps him up at night? His answer was labor, labor, labor. That may be a constraint on their ability to grow uh, and that's the question of stimulating at full employment. You know, how can can we actually stimulate the economy if there aren't enough workers to to hire? So um, I thought his answers on how they're increasing the efficiency of their business, more manufactured components, mm-hmm. 
fewer technology, sh- yeah, fewer um, floor plans, right? Uh, was one of the ways they get around this. Very interesting. That speaks to uh, productivity improvements, right? Right. Well, that's what I, you know. When you look at the the economy and economic growth, I mean, do you see things picking up for the United States? Let's just start there. You know, later on this year. Well, picking up is 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 uh, we've already picked up. I mean, okay. we're we're running strong. So I would actually expect that we could moderate, and the things would be just fine. Okay. In other words. If the global uh, capex cycle slows a bit, we may not see, we may not run quite as strong as we did last year, or maybe in the same neighborhood. That's fine. We're generating plenty of jobs. Um, that's not a bad picture. And in fact, that's what the Fed is trying to engineer: is that soft landing. All right. right. So let me ask you. I've got about 25 seconds left here. I asked him what kept him up at night. What keeps you up at night, though, when you look at the uh, global economic picture? For me, it, it usually goes back to China. They, I, yeah. I expect that they'll manage things well. That's my base case, but they have built up a pretty epic mountain of debt over the last couple of years. And I don't expect a hard landing scenario. They learned a lot of lessons from how they managed their slowdown in 2015. Um, and they seem to be managing things better, but it's uncertain. It's a, it's a very huge task they are faced with. So to me, it would ripple out across the global economy. Maybe not a banking crisis right. like we saw, but Something. we would feel it. Julia, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Julia Coronado, president and founder at Macro Policy Perspectives here at the New York Stock Exchange. I do want to bring in Harvard Karen Dynan. She's professor of the practice in the economics department at Harvard University. Quite uh, a background, though. Former assistant secretary for economic policy, chief economist at the U.S. Treasury Department under President Obama. Also worked at the Federal Reserve. She did forecasting. She worked on the Fed's response to the financial crisis. She also served as a senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. In other words, I'm so glad to be talking with you. (laughs) What a great background. Um, You were part of a panel here at... um, the Rutgers Real Estate Conference, and you guys were talking about the role of millennials in home buying. And tell me, when you when you look at millennials and buying homes, are they doing everything that a younger generation would do when it comes to buying homes? Is it just like everybody else, or is it different? Well, thank you, Carol. It is really a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, yeah, lots of interest in the millennials and housing. So uh, we're talking about folks who are between their early 20s and mid to late 30s. And um, I would say, you know, the short answer is that in some ways they're very different. In some ways, I think they'll be the same. And they're different in the sense that, um, you know, if you look at this age group and you compare it to this age group, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you can see fewer are forming households as yet. Uh, more are living with their parents, fewer are owning homes as yet. And I think the really big question is, are they going to be permanently less likely to form households and own home homes, or is, is it just that they are delayed in doing so? And I think the data suggests that they are just delayed in doing so because they're taking longer to do other stuff as well. So they are staying in school longer. That's partly because they're getting more education than earlier cohorts does mm-hmm. did. That's a good news story. They're getting married later. They're having kids later. They have been slower to accumulate assets. I mean, part of that is probably because they're launching later. Part of it's because they came of age in an economically hard time. But if you look at kind of median net worth for this age group, it's something like $12,000 uh, these days. Yeah. That compares with 
something like $18,000 in inflation-adjusted terms. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, in talking with Ryan Marshall at Pulte, he said, you know, they are out there. And then when they do ultimately buy, what you are seeing is because they are older and maybe they have saved up more. And they're also in a job where they're making more money ultimately because they waited to kind of buy the home. So you, you have those factors at play as well. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That, you know, this, this, if the economy remains strong, and I think it will, I mean, this generation is coming out, they have uh, more education, they have higher rates of female labor force participation, all of those things are going to be pluses. So I think when they, I think we are starting to see them come into the market, but really when they hit the market, it's going to be big. Well, tell me, when you heard Ryan Marshall talk about you know, he was very upbeat and optimistic about where we are in the housing housing um, cycle. And he also talked about that there's just not a ton of supply. Having said that, if you've got that millennial generation, they put off buying a home, so they're doing it later, and yet there's still not enough supply. It sounds to me that there is maybe, I don't know, a few more years left in this housing cycle as those people start, as millennials start to ultimately buy homes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, what we hear about supply is that it just takes longer to bring it online these days than it did pre-crisis and that has to do with various things including government regulations but so i think we'll see supply increase slowly and uh you know while it's tight that means that there's going to be upward pressure on prices which is going to deter some people to buy a home now but i think ultimately we're going to get there what about the aspect of you know millennials being you know so much a part of the sharing economy um i mean is that still happening as well or are we kind of i don't know getting caught up in some interesting headlines but maybe that's not the actuality yeah um so there i think um so 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 i see no evidence that there are kind of less interested in ultimately owning a home and ultimately having a family than earlier generations. I think what that does play into is the question of, you know, what form homeownership is going to take for them and where they're going to want to live. And I think as yet we don't fully know the answer. I think they've shown a preference for living in more urban areas. I think that preference has been reinforced by changes in technology that has made it a lot more fun and um, easy to live in cities. Um, and you so, see that continuing because we've talked about that yeah. with the demographics, they, you know, an older population as well as a younger population, you know, continuing to want to be in the cities. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that that's a new story. I feel like that's always been out there, but I don't know if we're seeing it, you know, pick up some momentum. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know that the preference is new, but I just do think that we've seen technology reinforcing and that is something that's a little bit new. I think what will cut against that is the fact that it's going to get, that it's expensive to live in these urban areas. So so I think that will push some out to, um, I know that we'll see them go out to the distant suburbs mm-hmm. like we saw a dozen years ago, but I think kind of close in suburbs is probably in a lot of their futures. But 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 it, the cycle continues, correct? The cycle continues. I mean, in terms of that younger population, it's not like that they don't want to own a home. It just maybe has been trickier for them to get to this point. Absolutely. The cycle continues. All right. Interesting stuff. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Karen Dine, and she's professor at Harvard University, of course, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but on site with me at the Rutgers Center for Real Estate Conference at the New York Stock Exchange. We want to talk a little bit about the future of housing finance. Our next guest uh, was part of a panel that uh, talked about just that subject. Eric Kane is a chief executive and chief investment officer at Bethesda, Maryland-based AGNC Investment Corp. It's a real estate investment trust that invests primarily in agency mortgage-backed securities. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, 
what is the future of housing finance? I feel like coming off of the financial crisis, you know, we're all wondering, you know, should the government still be involved when it comes to uh, the financing of housing? Look, it's a great question, and I, I think everyone should feel so much better about where we are today versus where we were 10 years ago pre-crisis. And while we haven't gotten GSE reform, which is what everyone thought would get us you know, to a safer or better place, what we have had is the GSEs shrink their portfolios down to where they're not really material, and we've had them sell their credit risk or the credit risk underlying the conforming mortgage market out to other investors such as AGNC. And so I think people should feel good because we have done most of the heavy lifting Mm -hmm. in moving the risk associated with the housing market from the government, from the GSEs, to private investors um, such as mortgage REITs, money managers, insurance companies. So I think that's really the good news. There's still more work to do with, let's say, FHA, FHA you know, and the whole and um, other pieces. But most of the heavy lifting's been done. Are the safeguards, are the necessary safeguards, in your view, in place to make sure that the risk doesn't go back to the government? Well, I think right now um, you do have conservatorship. You have a regulator in a position, you know, to kind of monitor that. I think you have hard limits on the portfolio at the GSEs. Um, and so there, there could be a scenario if, um, where the government could choose to let the GSEs take credit risk again or stop selling it to the markets. But I think right now at least we're, we're – doesn't look like that's about to happen. What do you think? I mean, obviously, you know, from an investment perspective, you guys benefit by having the government, right, involved in housing and financing of housing. But I'm just curious, does it make sense still to have the government involved? Well, I think it does if the government is providing a function that is more akin to packaging, accumulating, making more liquid Um, but not taking the risk. And so I think that's the key to this, to to the future equation and why I feel good about where we have gotten. In the end, most of the capital, the most of the risk taking needs to come from the private sector. And we are moving in that direction. If the government is helping that to happen by aggregating and Mm -hmm. wrapping and pooling and doing things like that, those are good things that we wouldn't be better off without the government because you need liquidity. Um, You need... We wouldn't have the liquidity without We wouldn't. And it's very clear we haven't gotten it back in private securities. We've gotten it back, you know, with the agency mortgage market Mm -hmm. or government mortgage market. We really haven't gotten it outside of that. But what we have found is the way to put, you know, in a sense to put the two together where the only thing the government is guaranteeing with the GSEs now is really catastrophic risk. If we, you know, we would need a real blow up scenario to eat through the protection that the government's bought or is in the process of buying from the private sector. You know, when I talked with um, Ryan Marshall of Pulte before, I didn't quite get to this point, but I'm just curious. Ten years out from the financial crisis and the mortgage crisis, um, do you anticipate that at some point we will have another housing crisis of some sort? 
Um, you know, it's hard to say you will never have another housing crisis. And um, I, what I feel like is there were the prior housing crisis was the perfect storm. Um, lending standards were obviously an issue. We we did really everything wrong in a sense that we could have big mm-hmm. picture. Prices got out of control. Um, I think that the the structure of the mortgage market is so much safer here than it is globally, actually, which is strange to say after such a crisis. Right. But the structure, what people don't pay attention to sometimes, well, what people is just the type of loan, right? A 30-year amortizing mortgage means that you don't have to refinance that mortgage, like a commercial loan that's a 10-year loan, and then you have to refinance it. In other countries, their interest, their floating rate, and they have to be refinanced. So if interest rates go up, the borrower can then you know, have right. trouble meeting their, you know, their requirements, or they'll have to, at the end of the term, refinance it. We don't have those issues. So what I think people have lost sight of is relative to other debt markets, the housing market is actually structurally one of the safest. And without the excesses that we created before, I feel like the house, the, you know, the housing market um, or the financing for the housing market yeah. really is a... It, should have a, a safer kind of yeah. um, floor than other markets. we got to run. But thank you so much. Appreciate oh, your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Gary King, he's CEO and Chief Investment Officer at AGNC Investment Corp. All right. So we want to talk a little bit more about uh, the housing market and what we're seeing Our next guest uh, actually moderated a panel that talked about the future of housing finance here at the Rutgers Center for Real Estate Conference at the New York Stock Exchange. Morris Davis, Professor Morris Davis, Academic Director of the Rutgers Center for Real Estate uh, with us. He was also an economist at the Federal Reserve Board where he routinely briefed Alan Greenspan on housing and macroeconomics. Nice to have you here. Carol, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for having us. Tell us a little bit about the panel when you guys looked into housing finance because here we are 10 years out from the mortgage crisis. That was one of the themes that came out. Ten years, nearly 10 years ago, we were told that, boy, it's loud in here. <laughs> it's loud in here, but that's okay. Our listeners can still hear. <laughs> okay, that's good. So 10 years ago, we were told that the situation for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was purely temporary. The conservatorship was going to be just a temporary situation. And now 10, ten, years, ten years later, same situation. But there has been incremental change. They've been selling off some of their credit risk. They've had to shrink their portfolio. That's just one of the features that we touched on was changes in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac over the past 10 years. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, you have been covering the real estate market and the industry for a long time. What, what, what noticeable changes have you seen in the last decade since that crisis? I think the single biggest factor is the way that technology is changing both the demand for land and the way that we think about mortgage finance. We hear now that, um, you know, Amazon has changed our view of retail and uh, industrial product. Retail's dying, industrial is hot. Why? Because of Amazon. We also hear about fintech. Uh, we had Sue Barber, who is the divisional manager of home mortgages at Wells Fargo here. She covers home mortgage lending from Maine through Delaware. And Sue's almost shocking headline result was that within one year of them opening an online mortgage business to compete with the rocket mortgage of Quicken, 17% of their mortgage applications came from this new online portal. Wow. That, you know, we, were, we had so much to talk about at the panel, we didn't make great hay from that. But that just shows you how technology is permanently disrupting 
how we think about both the buildings and how we finance them. Was, uh, yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Was it from, could she tell in terms of, well, I'm sure they could tell who was applying. Was it because of a younger generation and that's how they wanted to apply or was it all, all age groups? I'm just curious. I don't want to miss... I'll tell you what I heard, and I hope it was the right thing. I heard that the... (laughs) Sue, you can call in. I don't know if this is a call-in show, but you can call in and correct this. What I heard was that um, it was the millennials that were driving a lot of that change. They want the convenience of applying when they want to apply and doing things their way. And that's what this new fintech kind of technology enables them to do. I feel like it's also a little bit of a a more cautious housing market in terms of, you know, we heard from um, Ryan Marshall of Pulte Group, you know, that they're acquiring land, they're spending money, but they're making sure that they don't overdo it. Yeah, Ryan Ryan gave a great keynote speech and and Carly did a great job uh, teasing out amazing pieces of information. The, um, the two things that I heard from Ryan, these were, you know, we talk about technology as disrupting the industry, but now Ryan mentioned two old thoughts. One is there's a land shortage. So he, he mentioned outright that they would invest more in the Northeast if they could, but there simply isn't the land available. Right. And then the other thing he talked about. It's also expensive. It's also expensive. Yeah. It's hard to acquire the land. What is, what is available is pretty pricey. And it's hard to entitle. There's yeah. a lot of rules up here. Uh, and then he talked, frankly, about a labor shortage. And he said it was hard. That, In fact, I think you asked him what keeps him up at night, and he, yeah. his response was labor, labor, labor. Right. So um, that the labor shortage has not yet impacted affordability because they've been able to pass through uh, the labor in cost of labor increasing it to final prices, and it hasn't been that extreme. But you could tell that he was thinking about how whether the labor shortage would impact those firms' ability to grow. Right, right, right. You think about it, because at some point, you can only do so much work with the existing labor force that you have. If you can't find more workers, you, can't, you just can't do more. That's right. And he talked about what he was doing with a tax cut. And he said, look, we're going to invest where we can, but otherwise we're going to give the money back to, to the shareholders. And, and one might tease away from that, that if they had more labor and more land, they'd build more homes. But maybe maybe they don't want to with the labor and the land they have, so they're ret- ret- returning the money to the shareholders. Right. I also feel like, you know, I, I see very much of a balance. They're thinking about shareholders, they're thinking about the business, they're thinking about the trends that are out there, right, and kind of making sure they're covering kind of all angles. I'm also curious, um, Mo, as you're known <laughs> among your friends, um, is as you talk to folks within this conference who are all you know, somehow connected into real estate and housing and so on. What's the mood that you're hearing from everybody? Well, a lot of people at this conference have made a lot of money recently. Um, People warehouse, there's some titans of the industrial space that were at the conference, and many of them are selling their portfolios because they don't remember a time where cap rates or prices have been so attractive. So, I, actually, this question came up. The question came up, I think you asked it first, and then uh, Richard Salzman talked about it. What inning of the expansion are we in, right. the real estate expansion? Are we near the end? Should we expect prices to fall? Are we in the middle? And what I walked away from was um, maybe sixth or seventh inning was some view, maybe eighth or ninth inning for some product segments was another view. Right. And I think that sentiment's shared widely in this room. 
You know, it's funny because it kind of mirrors. I was at another real estate event um, put on by Eisner Amper out on the West Coast and looking at that, and they said a lot of them were, were saying that, you know, we were really feeling like maybe we're topping out here in terms of real estate. They're just looking at some of the metrics and trends that were out there. So it's interesting to hear that. That's for some of the commercial real estate. You know, on the other hand, we heard about residential real estate being potentially quite strong now and quite strong for the indefinite future. Yeah. Uh, one thing that uh, we talked about with some of the Pulte Home folks was we have been underbuilding single-family homes, and we have a generation right. of millennials that are about to need <laughs> to own homes. So where are we going to put them? Where are they going to live? We'll find, we'll, we, we shall see. We'll see if they'll do more in building. Professor Morris Davis, thank you so much. Academic Director, Director of the Rutgers Center for Real Estate, joining us here on Bloomberg Markets, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 